You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm glad that you've gathered here with us this morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 10. And if you don't have a Mark journal, there's some Mark journals back there. Uh, Clay's back there at the table. He's got them. He'll hook you up. Uh, But it's a copy of the book of Mark with journaling pages throughout so that you can kind of keep track of questions and observations, ahas, pushbacks, and whatnot. Um, So feel free to grab one of those. It's a free gift from your church family. This is our 44th week in our journey and study through the book of Mark which happens to also be Timothy Awad's 33rd birthday. So happy birthday. Give us a wave so we know there's Tim. Yeah, yeah, he's going to kick me for that. Um, but I uh, <laughs> love you. But uh, as, we, as we jump in, let's start with uh, context um, as we get going. Uh, context is important for anyone who studies the Bible. Uh, it helps us understand more properly the, the setting and the surrounding thoughts around a passage to gain insight into what God's word has for us. Discovering context as you open scripture helps you understand a more accurate um, interpretation of a passage of scripture that's gonna keep you from potential errors. Um, So context for where we land here in chapter 10 and verse 13, leading up to this, John and the other 11 disciples Uh, 12 total, they try stopping a man from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Uh, So he was trying to do it the right way. He was doing it in the name of Jesus, not Beelzebub or Satan. He was doing it in the name of Jesus. But because the disciples didn't know this guy who was casting out demons, uh, they stopped him or they tried to stop him. And they went and told Jesus, hey, we we saw this guy doing this thing in your name and we stopped him. And Jesus said, don't stop him. He says, the one in verse Mark 9, verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Let him be. And then just a couple verses later, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, little ones, as we're gonna understand here in a minute, is you know little kids, but also little ones in the faith. Um, and my conviction is in this passage that the man who was casting out demons in the name of Christ was a, a young convert who was just giving his go, just giving his best effort. And Jesus was telling the disciples, hey, don't, I'll correct. You, you let him be. He's doing a good thing in the best way he knows how. Um, so that's, that's where I think these kind of fit together. But he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast and thrown into the sea. Again, this referred to young people in general, but really those who were young in the faith. And then Jesus moves from this, he moves his attention from this man and and these little ones to the disciples. He turns his words and attention to them, warning them about sin, warning the disciples about temptation to sin, warning them about how they must, when caught in temptation, out of desperation, run from sin and run towards faithfulness and towards God regardless of the cost. This was three weeks ago. You might remember if you were with us, that's the passage where Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot leads you to sin, cut it off. If your eye offends you and leads you to sin, pluck it out. Now, of course, not literally, that's missing the point of what Christ is saying. 
but it's to take godliness and holiness so seriously that there's that, that sort of desperation and dedication to remove anything, any variable that's keeping you from wholehearted devotion and dedication to following God, pursuing him in obedience. And then after that, we had uh, Pastor Derek who preached a phenomenal sermon on an often touchy subject of divorce. Um, the best sermon that I've ever heard on divorce uh, thank you, Pastor Derek, for your careful work through that passage of Scripture. It was tremendous, and it was a, a very rich blessing. Uh, so thank you for your dedication and faithfulness there. Uh, and then we come to this passage. So here we are in chapter 10 and verse 13. Uh, and we're not going to go all the way to verse 31 um, because we'll be here till 2 o'clock maybe, which I know would excite so many of you. Um, <laughs> but instead, we're going to do a part one, part two. Uh, so we're going to pick up uh, the rest of the to be continued next week. Uh, we're going to work through the first portion of this passage. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, that he might hold them. And the disciples rebuked them, warned them, like, don't, don't come up to him. No, he's not seeing you. But when Jesus saw it, when he saw the disciples pushing the children away from him, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Don't hold them back. Let them come to me. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, who, he who does not welcome, he who does not accept the kingdom of God like a child, shall not enter it. And then he took them, those children, in his arms and blessed them and laid his hands on them. Reflecting back at Mark 9, 24, Jesus references young ones again, children once more. And he does so later on in the passage uh, that Derek, Pastor Derek read that we're gonna look at next Sunday. Uh, to place our hope in Jesus and his righteousness, it requires it requires a certain humility and trust. To place your hope in Christ Jesus, it requires humility and trust. Humble trusting, much like a little child, oblivious of so much, but vulnerable, declaring their need and reaching out for help. To such belongs the kingdom. Now, I love to hold the babies of the axis in part because it gives the, the parents a break. But also, I can't hold my four babies anymore. They're not so little anymore. They're grown up. But mainly because I remember back in the day when there were no babies of the Axis Church. And just this year, I learned this this week, there's been more babies born into our church family this year so far than total people at our first gathering 13 years ago. It's fascinating. But I love the children. I love seeing the children of our church. It's such a blessing. And as I hold them and as I give them cars at the end of our services, as I talk with their parents, I often wonder, and I pray over them, and I often wonder, am I holding the next pastor of the Axis Church? Is this one going to be a missionary? Is this one going to read the Bible all the way through? Is this one going to be an elder, a deacon, a teacher in the church? I do this as I hold them. I do this as I give out cars. And I believe this was sort of a similar 
vibe of what was happening with Jesus and these little children. As he prayed over them, blessed them, it says, spoke over them. I wonder if he knew the persecutions and suffering that they would endure as they would mature and have faith in him and be pillars in the New Testament church. I wonder if he knew who they would be, what they would become, and he was preparing them through prayer, praying over them, the prayer of endurance, so that they would be kept to the end. I don't know, but I know it was a real special moment. It was more than just petting little kids on the head. There was great intentionality, a lot of comfort, a lot of care. He would hold them, he would bless them, and pray over them. And they would humbly, like, like little children, as children, they would just go to him. And Jesus says here, essentially, that the humble and the childlike, they'll be in the kingdom, not the proud. Those who are trusting and open to him will be in the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, not those who trust in themselves. Those who trust in themselves and their own self-righteousness, their, their good deeds, their good actions, their works, their giving, their service. Those who place their confidence in all of this. Ooh. Those who place their confidence in all of this for their identity, for their confidence, for their, for their value, for their worth, their righteousness, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, mainly because they're trying to build their own kingdom. You can't serve two kingdoms at one time. You can't serve two masters, Jesus says, at the same time. And throughout, scriptures, throughout the scripture, we're taught that the kingdom of God is for those who know that they're not good enough. The kingdom of God is for those who know they're clumsy and can't keep it together. The kingdom of God is for those who are, are, know that they're sinners, who, who know that they, they, don't, they don't have anything good within them, those that just need mercy and they're like kids, they're humble enough to ask, for help and mercy. The kingdom of God is for this person. And God gives it to him just like he does every time. Just like you mentioned in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never send away. It's the humble and it's those who are aware. Those will be justified. Those will be delivered by Jesus into the very presence of God one day. Friends, let's pray for this humility, this child likeness. And let's often ask God for help to trust him more, to believe him more especially if you've been a Christian for years. Pray for belief, to believe him more. Pray for trust, to be able to trust him more. Pray for faith, to have more faith in him. After this, Jesus, he, he begins his journey towards Jerusalem. And as he does so, he's interrupted. Look in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man runs up to him and kneels before him and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life, to get eternal life, to have eternal life? This man runs up to Jesus and asks, good teacher, what must I do? And this is perhaps the most important question we could consider. Have you spent much time pondering this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Think over this question and do it with an open, open heart and a, and a thinking mind and a Bible in your hand and ask yourself, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Jesus juke principle, but I'm pretty sure this is the first Jesus juke that we've come across in Mark. Good? No one's good except God alone. Do you really know what you mean when you call me good? Only God is good. Are you aware that you're calling me God? Now, Jesus isn't denying his own goodness or his deity as the son of God. He's calling his attention to this because he's not interested in empty flattery. Good teacher, which, listen to yourself, calling me good. Oh, how I wish you believed this. Jesus understands his heart. And he says this in verse 19, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. To inherit eternal life, what must you do? Uh, uh, be perfectly righteous. That's the answer. Do right all the time. That's what Jesus essentially says. Be perfect in all the things of the law and you'll certainly be accepted into the presence of God. And this is true. Jesus speaks the truth here. In order to have eternal life, you must be perfect always. Friend, this is why we're condemned to eternal judgment and death. It's because we're not perfect always. But Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus forever will be perfect. And he lived his perfect life for us. It wasn't just for him. He lived his perfect life for us as our perfect representative. And the gospel tells us that if we have faith in Christ and his work, that his perfect life is transferred to ours, accredited to our life and account, therefore we gain eternal life through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's what Christ has done, it's not what we do. We simply have faith in what he has done. So believe Jesus and you get to answer this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe Jesus, that he did everything necessary to earn me eternal life. It's what he's done. Now back to the text here, Jesus in his answer, given the 10 commandments, basically, he's, he's answering the young man's question in a traditional Jewish way, talking about how to keep the 10 commandments, how to keep the commandments. Which, and he, he goes through the latter part of the, the commandments of the 10, which of course are more obvious and visible, and it's because it's easier to discern and test the, the person's outward behavior. But Jesus is God, and God is concerned not with the outward only, but mainly with the heart. As, as 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us, for the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The why behind the why, the motive, the heart. Remember how Jesus taught in Matthew, um, the passage that Pastor Derek referred to in his sermon two weeks ago. In Matthew 5, have you heard, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, one of the commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
and about murder in Matthew 5. You have heard it said of those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. And everyone who insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Be perfect, Jesus says, in order to have eternal life. Not just in the outward, but the inward, with your hearts, with your heart, your mind, your emotion. Be perfect. We know we can't do this. We haven't done this. Don't deceive yourself. None of us, I shouldn't have to tell you this, none of us are perfect. You're not perfect. We'll never be able to be this perfect. But this man that Jesus was talking to that ran up to him, said, good teacher, what must I do in here in eternal life? He didn't see things this way. He really thought he was perfect. Look at this, verse 20. He said to him, teacher, he didn't, he didn't say good teacher. He's like, all right, we'll get rid of that one. Uh, just teacher, how about that? Um, no more rebuke. Teacher, all these I have kept. I've, I've observed and I've obeyed these things ever since I can remember. From my youth. Now, if Jesus was sipping on drink, at this point, he would have probably just like speeded out. He's like, you know, keep the commandments. He's like, oh, I've kept those from my youth. He's like, But you know what is crazy about Jesus? This man in his arrogance and his ignorance, the, the the next few words, and Jesus loved him. And instead of pointing out the 10 and a half million things that he could have, he said, you just, man, there's one thing that you lack. In a way, it's almost like he's trying to pull him to the light. Instead of being like, man, there's 10 million things that you really you know, messed up on. But he said, no, there's just one, just let's focus on this one thing. And that's where we're gonna go to be continued next week. But I just love that Jesus didn't dismiss him. That's what's so wonderful about Jesus. He knows us in our sinfulness, even when we don't. And he loves us. And he's willing to walk with us through whatever that one thing is. That's really a million things. This man here, he does what you and I often do today. It's not that he willingly, consciously lied. He probably didn't mean to lie. It's, it's that he tweaked and, and sort of remanufactured the law of like what God constantly requires. It's like he modified it in such a way that he could obey his version of the law. You've got to keep the law. And he's thinking, I've done that, right? Because he's he's created his own version of it. In other words, he was blind to the true law of what was truly required. He was ignorant of the true standard of the law. Along the way, this man had changed the law of God, of what God required in order to accommodate his imperfections and his own sins and his inability to follow the law. He couldn't keep up living the righteous requirement of the law. He couldn't handle the guilt 
that he experienced from failing. And so what he did is he changed what God said. He changed what God meant. He changed what God expected and he changed what God required. But friend, this is the purpose of the law. It's to show us that we're not perfect. The purpose of the law is to show us that we can't make it, that we can't match up, that we're not good enough so that we would then look to God for help and mercy. And if we, if we don't look to God for help, we have to modify the law in order for us to live with ourselves, in order for us to not feel shame or guilt for not matching up to the standard. His law is written on our hearts. We can't deny it. We know when we mess up. And so we either run to him in help for help or we change what he says. When we look at the law, the righteous requirements, we look to him for help or we have to change the law so we don't need help. And that's where this man was. He, he changed it in such a way where he's like, according to what I understand of what I believe the law is, I am perfect. And I've been this way since I was a little kid. He changed the law so he didn't need help. But you know what? He still needed something. Even in his pursuit of perfection, he still wasn't perfect enough to have eternal life. Even in how twisted he was in his pursuit of righteousness, it wasn't enough. And he knew it. That's why he came to Jesus. His attempt was insufficient, even though he admitted that he was perfect. Looking to God for help and mercy, that's humility. It's like a vulnerable child. It's leaning on Christ's righteousness, not your own. Modifying the law like it's a tool in your hands, that's a form of pride leaning on your self-righteousness. Where you're trying to change the law to accommodate your life, not having to change. You change that so you don't have to change. When that is not Christianity, that's a good cult maybe, but that's not Christianity. That's dangerous, but it's not Christianity. Christianity says this is the unchanging law of God. It is perfect and we're not, and we have to change in order to live within the kingdom of God and relationship with him. We don't change this so that we don't have to change. We change and live under this. Self-righteousness though, it blinds us from seeing the truth. Self-righteousness blinds us from seeing who we really are, from seeing reality. I've been perfect all my life, ever since I can remember. It blinds us. This is so dangerous. And I'm afraid we do this so often. Rather than trusting in the goodness of Jesus, we change what's required so that we can just trust in ourselves, so that we don't have to trust God. We don't have to look to Jesus. After all, if you're honest, it's difficult to admit when you're needy. It's difficult to admit that you need help. It's hard to admit that you're clumsy and you can't keep it together. If you say that, people are gonna judge you. They're not gonna count on you for certain things. So you have to fake it. And it's difficult to trust, even Jesus. It's difficult to trust somebody else. What we need is to believe and look to Jesus. We gotta get our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus. And in regards to all this, I love Romans chapter eight. Be encouraged with just a reading from Romans. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh by crucifying his son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the things of flesh is death, but to set the mind in the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, Christian, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells within you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We must all be praying for the self-righteous blinders to fall off, be praying for self-righteousness to be quickly discerned when it's within us and noticed. We must be praying for humility and soul awareness, self-awareness and a childlikeness. When we fail at living the way that we know that we should be living, we fail at living the way that God calls us to live in obedience, do not modify and change what God expects or demands or requires. Don't do this, my friend. Instead, change yourself. Instead, repent and turn to him. Don't change what he says. Don't change what he expects. Don't change what he demands. Regardless of what your cultural moment is calling you to compromise on when it comes to this book, don't change this book. Don't don't change what God demands for the sake of accommodating your cultural moment or your comfort. That is so tragically dangerous. And by doing so, you escape Christianity and you begin to form your own religion. That is so dangerous. This man, this is what this man did. He manufactured a new religion where he created the rules around it so he wouldn't have to change so that he could say that he's perfect according to his law. And that was not enough. And then as he influenced others, with that same dangerous teaching, how that would affect others. But he did the right thing in coming to Jesus. That's what we're to do. Run to Jesus. Run to the cross. Throw yourself onto Jesus. Collapse in his direction and rest in his finished work and trust in his ability to meet the righteous requirement for you as you in your place. And ask God, for the strength that you need to live 
according to the spirit and not according to the flesh, as we were just reading about in Romans 8, so that you better fight the drift and not be so easily tricked by sin. Ask God to show you the truth and give you faith to believe the truth, the truth about you and the truth about him. When we sin, let's not hide. Let's not cover it up out of fear and shame. When we sin, let's not think that, that it's gonna go away by us just doing more good and that's gonna help it disappear. Man, sitting in our sin and not confessing our sin and repenting, it doesn't remove the mold and the mildew of sin. It only forces it to grow all the more and it becomes much more larger of a problem than ever before. We must own up to our sin. And as 1 John 1 encourages us to walk in the light with our sin, with our struggles, confessing and repenting and allow God's love and his forgiveness to be experienced over that sin as we confess it and repent of it. It's taking the truth of what God has done for sinners through the work of his son, Jesus, taking that truth and applying it to our own hearts when we sin. It's in our nature to run and hide. It was, it's instinctual. Look at our very first father. Look at Adam in the garden. He sins. What is his first move? He runs and hides. His second move, he cuts off a leaf from a fig tree to cover his sin and his shame which is a form of self-righteousness. This is what we naturally do. This is living according to the flesh. We run and hide. We go to the darkness when we sin. That is living according to the flesh. That is not living according to the spirit. That is not freedom. That does not set you free. That does not make you happy. That makes you miserable. It's like putting a plastic sheet over something that's got mold and mildew. It's just gonna make it worse. Walk into the light. Confess that, do what Adam should have done and walk towards God and not away from him. Confess it and don't sit in silence. Show it and don't hide it. But it's in our nature to run and hide when we sin. And this form of self-righteousness is a form of sin management. And sin cannot be managed. Sin must only be confessed and repented of. And we deceive ourselves, we trick ourselves when we think that we can manage our sin apart from the help and guidance of God. You've gotta change your way of thinking. You've gotten played by sin too much and too often. You've listened to the toxic voice of sin and temptation for too long. You're tolerating it too long. You're listening to it. You know where it's gonna lead you, but you still listen to it, thinking that at the right moment you can walk away from it. Don't be tricked. Sin is not a toy to be played with. It'll take your life. The voices of sin and temptation, they lead us into trouble and then they compound the problem by leading us to hide the trouble that we just got into. You've got to change it. You've got to change what you listen to within. Not listening to the flesh, but listening to the spirit of God that is active, that's dwelling within you. Change your belief and your thoughts about sin and temptation and confession and repentance and change what you do when you sin. You've got to change your mentality around sin and temptation. Run from temptation when you're tempted. At the slightest thought of temptation, run from that temptation when you're tempted. Run to the cross when you sin. Don't hide in a cave. Run to the cross. Run to the light. Don't recoil into that darkness. And then run the Christian life as if it's a race, pacing yourself, keeping your eyes on the goal, which is Christ Jesus, the author, the beginner, the sustainer and finisher of our very faith. Run to him. 
The voices of temptation, the voices of despair, the voices of doubt, they've got to be confronted by you using your mouth and your mind to speak the truth of Jesus Christ to that temptation and to that despair and to that doubt. It's exactly what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness being tempted. He quoted scripture right back to the enemy. It's what he did in his, in his moment of weakness and even doubt in the garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, his brutal beating and his death on the cross. He quotes scripture. He looks up to the father in his weakness and says, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. You gotta change the voice that you obey. Don't obey the voice of sin and the enemy anymore. It's gonna confine you, it's gonna whoop you. Obey the voice of the truth, the voice of the spirit. Take the sinful thought and the temptations that you experience and preach the truth of the gospel of Christ to those temptations. Tell it where it's, you know it's tricking you. Tell it. Tell it, I see the bait, but I know there's a hook on it. I'm not an idiot. Say those things to these, to these tempting thoughts. Play it out and let it know exactly where it's trying to lead you. Expose its, its plan. Don't get tricked anymore. When you sin, don't accommodate it. Don't manage it. Confess it. Like a needy, humble child who is often scared. When you sin, you find yourself in trouble, when you've messed up, simply come to God and experience grace and mercy, compassion, comfort, and care when you need it most. I believe that there's many of us who've been Christians for a while, and unfortunately, we've tricked ourselves along the way. We've tricked ourselves into thinking that our sin isn't that big of a deal we've kind of outgrown the big sins that need confession. But the little stuff, the pride within, the thoughts, like, it's not as, we'll have to wait till it grows into something bigger to confess it. Right now, it's okay. You're being tricked. I believe that many of us are tricked into thinking that we can manage our sin, that it won't find us out. This morning, I'd like for us all to take some time to think over our lives, Christians in particular, those who've been Christians for more than five to 10 years, especially. Stop playing games with sin and stop placing weight value on sin as if some are larger than others. Refuse to listen to the voice of sin and temptation and refuse to hide. Cancel that habit out of your life. Don't hide anymore. You can't help hearing temptation, but you don't have to give it so much sway in your life. And the enemy, the enemy only uses the tools that you give him. So be careful little eyes what you see and be careful ears what you hear. We invite a lot of problem on ourselves because of what we feed, our minds and our hearts. Think on things that are good and true and beautiful. Ask God for practical help when you're fighting sin, when you're tempted to sin. Ask him to give you a way out of trouble and the courage to take it. And listen carefully to the voice of the spirit and truth and listen for confession and speak it. And then finally, to those who aren't Christians yet, I say this with a heavy heart, you do not have eternal life. 
Don't believe the lie that you're okay if you die. You're not. The Bible teaches clear that you're going to spend eternity in hell apart from everything that's good. But it doesn't have to stay this way. That's why Jesus Christ came. Part of his work was to save you from this. You can lay aside, lay aside your way. You can lay aside your pride, your self-righteousness, and your plans for how things should go. Set this aside and look to Jesus. Like Matthew 6, says, you seek him first and all these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about this other stuff. Your way, your plan, your future, your goals, your career ambitions. He cares about all that stuff. Leave it. Just go to him and trust him and he'll lead you. Please look to Jesus. I beg you to ask yourself the question, what must I do to gain eternal life? Ask yourself that question. And I encourage you to answer that question by telling yourself the truth. I get eternal life by trusting Jesus. That's a fact from scripture. And I encourage you to pray even now saying, God, help me to trust Jesus for eternal life. Help me to trust Jesus for eternal life. Ask God for faith. Faith is a gift. It's not something you muster up. It's a gift of God, according to Ephesians chapter two. Ask him for that gift. Ask God to show you who and what you are apart from him and ask God to show you all that Jesus has done for you and ask him to help make it matter to the deepest part of who you are. Come to Jesus today and be saved. And now for those who've been saved, each and every Christian, I open the Lord's table for you today. Father, as we come to the table this morning to remember Jesus Christ, Lord, help us rest in his finished work. Lord, help us trust you like a baby. Help us cling to you, not our wealth or status. Lord, not our health, not our self-righteousness, nothing else. Help us to cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Spirit of God, be with us as we pray and share in this time. Amen. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what we remember now as we come to the Lord's table this morning. My friend, let's be humbled and grateful for the work of Jesus. He lived and died and beat death. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that we don't have to shoulder that burden or responsibility. We remember this as we come to the table this morning. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage. We're gonna have self-serve stations in the back. You're gonna take bread, which is symbolic of the perfect life of Jesus Christ that cancels out your sinful life. And you're gonna dip that bread into the juice or the wine, that red liquid symbolic of the death of Christ, his blood that was shed for you so that you could be forgiven of your sin as he took the wrath of God and judgment of God in your place for you so you don't have to endure that at all. It's this that we remember as we come to the table. These are the gifts of God for the people of God and we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he's coming again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering, this time of worshiping, this time of thinking, this time of communion, and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, I encourage you to come.
You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.